0: Amen. Alrighty. Hey, one day this guy was walking across this bridge and he saw another fellow who looked like he was ready to jump off the bridge. And so he, he thought he'd try to stall him, right? Until the authorities showed up. And so he yells out to the guy there on the bridge. He says, hey, hey, don't jump. Don't jump. And to which the guy replied, why not? Nobody loves me. And he says, well, well God loves you. Y- you believe in God, don't you? And he says, yeah, I believe in God. He said, well, good. He said, are you a Christian or are you Jewish? And he said, well, I'm, I'm Christian. He goes, hey, me too. He said, what kind of Christian? And the guy said, I'm a Baptist. He goes, hey, me too. Are are you independent Baptist or Southern Baptist? And all God's people said, yeah, Southern Baptist. That's what he said. He said, hey, me too. He said, uh, new evangelical, moderate Southern Baptist or conservative Southern Baptist? He said, conservative Southern Baptist. He goes, hey, me too. He said, once saved, always saved, conservative Southern Baptist or lose your salvation, Arminian conservative Southern Baptist. And he said, Well, once saved, always saved, conservative Southern Baptist. He said, Hey, me too. He said, King James only, once saved, always saved, conservative Southern Baptist? Or modern versions, once saved, always saved, conservative Southern Baptist? And the guy said, Well, modern versions, once saved, always saved, conservative Southern Baptist. And the other guy said, What? You heretic? And he pushed him over the bridge. <laughs> now, folks, is that true or what? Unfortunately, with we Christians. You know, it's like the old axiom. We seem to major in the minors, minor in the majors, okay? Uh, Apparently, unfortunately, we Christians can disagree on some stuff. That joke kind of proves it, okay, in the harsh sense there. But this morning, if there's one thing I hope we don't ever disagree on, okay, come on. We got to agree on this one. And that's the church ordinance of communion, amen? Okay, and I say that because not only is this the Sunday, obviously, that we're going to take communion again, okay? But I say that because, believe it or not, folks, some Christians... I believe, unfortunately, approach this time of communion with an attitude that God disagrees with. And I'm telling you, the results are not good. They are disastrous. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to his. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read the, the context of the passage, uh, Paul talking about communion. And that's very important. If you want to get the heart of what's going on with the passage that uh, at least that I utilize when we take communion, let's grab the whole context. Okay, and that's what we're gonna to do today. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. If you find second Corinthians, what do you do? Hey, back up one, you find third Corinthians, what do you do? Wrong Bible, that's right, there is none. Uh, but anyway, that's right, first uh, Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17, let's grab the whole context of the Lord's Supper, what we call Communion. And Paul says this, now he's talking to the church, listen, can you believe this? He says, in the following directives, verse 17, I have what? No praise for you. How many guys would say right then and there, that's probably not a good sign? (laughs) Okay, yeah, I got no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. What? He said in the first place, here's why. I hear that when you come together as a church, there's what? Divisions. Man, good thing that doesn't happen today. Okay, there's divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. He says when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not communion you're doing, i.e. you eat for as you eat, each one of you goes ahead without uh, the other, okay, waiting for anybody else, okay, you're being selfish, he says this, he says, one remains hungry, another gets drunk, he says, don't you have homes to eat or drink in, or do you, listen to this word, despise the church of God, and humiliate those who have nothing, what shall I say to you, shall I praise you for this, certainly not, notice the exclamation point, now here's that passage that's the opening context he said for i received from the lord what i also passed on to you the lord jesus on the night he was betrayed he took some bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my what body which is for you so do this in remembrance of me okay he's showing him the correct methodology for communion he said now in the same way after supper he jesus took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant or contract in my what blood do this too.'" Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Why? Because whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. He's coming back. Therefore, who, here's the problem. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So you don't want to do that. Therefore, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Why? Because anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks what? Judgment on himself. And he says, listen, guys, whether you realize it or not, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. You died. Whoa. He said, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Now, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Stop being selfish. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'm going to give further instructions. Now, folks, when you grab the whole context of communion, what's really going on there, how many guys would say that "Mm, God kind of takes communion a little serious? (laughs) when you grab the whole context, right? I mean, what did it say there at the end? What was the consequences of an uh, an improper attitude? He says, some of you Christians actually got sick, some of you were weak, and some of you actually died due to your lack of reverence and sinful behavior when taking it. I'd say that means, again, communion is serious. And folks, here's here's my premise this morning. I I don't think it just happened back then with the Corinth church. I actually believe it or not that it could very well be happening today, yet people are not associating being weak, being in a sickened state, uh, and even dying, and they're not associating with communion because of their lack of understanding of communion and what it means. Therefore, I'm thinking that if we're going to avoid the same harsh reality of being disciplined by the hand of God for having an improper attitude towards communion, I'd say we better remind ourselves what is the true purpose and the true meaning of communion? How about you? Hey, great answer, we're gonna do it anyway, but I appreciate your personal involvement. The first thing that uh, communion, that we desperately need to understand, guys, if we're gonna escape being disciplined by the hand of God is communion is a time of worship. Communion is a time of worship. It's all about worship. That's the whole theme of it, folks. You you folks, communion is communion, not just a time, okay, that we Christians gather together and go through this dry, stale, boring, ritualistic activity. It's just something you got to do once in a while. That's not what it is. It's not just about us standing up, sitting down, passing this, passing that, doing this, doing that. No. Communion is all about worship. It's worship of God. It's worship of all the wonderful things that he's done for us in saving us. And he calls us to enter into this worshipful attitude during communion by telling us to remember two things. Okay. And the first thing he calls us to remember so that we can start preparing our hearts to worship is you better remember this, that his body was broken for you. To gain that worshipful attitude of communion, we have to remember that his body was broken for you. And let's see, let's take a look at that text. Here's what he says, the first thing. Remember in the context there, he, he exposed their bad behavior and says, now here's how you're supposed to do it. And the first thing is, remember his body was broken for you. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 24. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took some bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. It's symbolic of his body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. Okay, it's what the passage says. And so it's obvious, folks, the very first thing that Jesus calls us to remember to reflect upon with an attitude of worship during communion is that his body was broken for us, right? And I really think this is part of our problem. We just, as Christians over time, we just, uh, it just becomes some Christian thing you do and we lose the significance of it. And the first thing he says is, My body was broken for you. Why? Because when you understand, when you recall, when you force yourself to remember what his body went through uh, for you and I to have our sins forgiven, you cannot help but worship him. It's amazing what he has done. So let's do that. Let's remind ourselves first what did Jesus' body go through? How was it broken on our behalf? And again, I think this is part of our problem. We either have forgotten about it, we become flat out numb about it, what he went through on the cross. And folks, for your information, the cross is not just some Christian religious symbol to hang around your neck. It's not just some religious thing that you can put a bumper sticker on the back of your car. What was the cross of Jesus Christ? It's become a Christianese word. The cross was a horrible instrument of suffering and death. When the Bible says that his body was broken, it was completely broken in a sense. Not his bones were broken because that was fulfilling prophecy, but it was messed up. The cross was the firing squad of the day, to put it in the uh, modern vernacular. It was the hangman's noose, the cross of Jesus Christ. If he were here today, maybe we'd be wearing a gas chamber around our neck. The cross was the death penalty of the day. It was the means of which to execute the worst of criminals, yet Jesus was not a criminal. He was the Christ, he was the Messiah, he was the savior of the world. Listen, he who knew no sin voluntarily died to take away our sin. Unless we think this was some easy thing to do. Hey, I'm gonna share a little short video clip of what did Jesus, his body go through on this cross? that I think sometimes we so flippantly wear around our necks. What did he go through on the cross? Let's remind ourselves of that so hopefully we can start to gain this worshipful attitude before we partake of communion. Let's take a look.
1: Jesus has endured hours of misery, but the worst of the ordeal is yet to come. The nails that are used, uh, we have many of them uh, excavated here and there. They're usually quite long. Uh, They have a very large uh, head The shank is square and cross-section, they're forged, they're quite pointed, because they're to be driven into very large timbers, that is through the person and into the wood. In quick succession, the nails are pounded into his feet and hands. There are many uh, cases in which, for example, an, uh, an injury to the hand uh, from a bullet or from a, even a, a, a knife would cause what is called causalgia, and initially the pain is felt just where the injury is. If the median nerve is ruptured or injured, it will also cause severe, excruciating, burning like pains, like lightning bolts traversing the arm into the spinal cord. Now we know from experiences in, during war, especially World War II, where did studies on a condition called causalgia, which is a condition caused by injuring the median nerve. The pain was so terrific that even morphine wouldn't help, and they had to actually operate on the spinal column in order to decrease uh, that pain or to eliminate uh, that type of pain. And it's so severe that if you blow on the skin of the hand where the pain is, the patient will scream Abnormally. When a nail pierces the top of the foot, goes through the top of the foot, whether it went through uh, each foot separately or both feet, it would rupture or at least injure the plantar nerves, which go down in between each of the bones. The pain would be very similar to that of the hand because causalgia is the same medical condition. Uh, causing severe, lightning bolt-like pains right up the legs, burning, searing type of pains.
0: Hey folks, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I'm kind of thinking, being nailed to a cross, your body, it's kind of painful. How about you? Jesus did this voluntarily knowing who he was dying for, you and I who wanted nothing to do with him, who sinned against him, and yet he still went through that. Why? Out of pity, out of compassion, to keep you and I from getting us what we deserve. And folks, believe it or not, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's just the beginning of what Jesus went through on the cross. That was just the beginning of a huge ordeal that his body would be broken. Let's take a look at a medical perspective of his last minutes on the cross. One coroner guy wrote this, I believe he says, as Jesus slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrists, excruciating fire, he shoots through his fingers and up to the arms and explode into his brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure as we saw in the video, the median nerves. Therefore, he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment. He places the full weight of the nail, though, at this point, through his feet. But this causes searing agony as the nail tears through the nerves between the bones of his feet. Then his arms begin to get fatigued. Cramps sweep through his muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn in the lungs, but he cannot be exhaled. So Jesus fights to raise in order to just get even one small breath and then spasms. He's able to push himself upward to exhale to get more oxygen, but each time it's less and less. He experiences hours of horrible pain as the tissue is torn from his lacerated back, moving up and down against the rough timber just so he could breathe. But then another agony arrives. A deep crushing pain in the chest begins as the area around his heart slowly fills with serum and it begins to compress his heart. It's almost over. The loss of fluids has reached a critical level. The heart is struggling to pump blood. His tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues and finally Jesus can allow his body to die but not before he says, Father, forgive them. No, oh, not what they do. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now folks, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking that's not, that's not a very fun way to die, right? On top of, put it in its context. Who in the right mind would volunteer to die like that? especially for people who sinned against you, hate your guts, and wanted nothing to do with you. But get this, folks, that's exactly what Jesus did. <laughs> you talk about the love of God. We all deserve, myself included, deserve to die and go straight into hell. But the good news is through the cross of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven and go straight into heaven. Can you believe that? That's the message of the cross. And to think it's not just free for the asking, but We don't deserve it, and it's completely secure. Folks, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, man, you recall that? You reflect on that, on his body being broken for you in that context? Woo, that'll inspire some worship, won't it? And that's exactly what he says. Remember, his body, before you take communion, before you take communion, his body was broken for you. But that's not all the second thing that he calls us to remember, to enter into this worshipful attitude uh, d- during communion. is listen, is isn't just that. His blood was spilled for you. Let's take a look at that text. And this is what he says here, Paul, right after that body part. He says this at 1 Corinthians 11, now verse 25. He says, now in the same way. That's step one. Step two, after supper, he takes his cup. And Jesus took this cup and here's what he said. This cup is the new covenant contract, is what it means. In my blood. So do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so again, folks, it's pretty obvious the second thing that Jesus calls us to remember, to reflect upon, to gain, I would say, this attitude of worship during communion is now that his blood was spilled for you. Why? Because again, folks, when you understand what it means to have his blood shed on our behalf, you cannot help but put it into turbo mode and worship him. So again, let's do that. Let's remind ourselves this morning, what does it mean, guys? Let's get out of this Christianese thing. Let's remind ourselves, what does it mean to have the blood of Jesus Christ spilled in our behalf? And again, folks, I think this is our problem. We've either forgotten it or we've become flat out numb. We've turned it into a Christianese phrase and we say it all the time, oh, the blood of Jesus, oh, We we don't even recall what it means to have his blood Shed in our behalf. Listen to this, folks. When the Bible says that God will forgive us of our sins through Jesus Christ because of his blood being shed on the cross, he doesn't listen, just forgive us of some of our sin. It's a complete salvation. He forgives us of all of our sins. That's the power that's in the blood. In fact, so much so, listen, right now, not tomorrow, not in the future, but right now, God sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ, get this, as if we've never sinned through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his blood being spilled in our behalf. That's amazing. One guy puts it this way. He says, man, I always had this fear of going to heaven. He say, going to heaven? He says, yeah. He said, I, heaven, I had this feeling that they were going to pull down this big old movie screen, like this one or something. And, and they're going to they're place this videotape, they're going to pull it down and, and play this videotape of all the sins I ever committed back on earth. And my mother would be there. He said, now, here's the good news, folks. He says, I don't know if they got a tape on me recording all my sins, and I don't know if they got a tape on you recording of all your sins, but if there is such a tape, I got good news for you. Jesus has erased your tape. We'll say that again for the four of you that got that. Jesus has erased your tape. That's what he's done. He says, your scripture, the scripture says, your sins, the scripture says, is blotted out. It's buried in the deep, at sea. it's remembered no more. And he says, and that thrills me. Not just to have my sins forgiven, but totally forgotten, okay? He says, because that means one day I'm going to walk before the Lord and Jesus is going to be there with all my sins forgiven, forgotten, buried into the deepest sea, remembered no more, and with a record that is completely washed clean. He will embrace me and I will be able to call him even now, Abba, Father. You know, the creator of the universe, Abba, Father. Is that an amazing kind of love or what? Again, put all that in this context. Who in the right mind would not only forgive those who sinned against you and hated your guts, (laughs) but forgive you so completely that you're actually gonna be uh, presented to God the Father as if you never did anything wrong in the first place? Isn't that awesome? And speaking of Abba the Father, that's exactly what God has done for us. That's what John says in his, his, his epistle. He says, can you believe it? <laughs> we become the children of God. God, the creator of the universe. Through Jesus Christ, through his body broken, his blood shed, you and I have become actual children of the creator of the universe. And he has become our heavenly father. And dare I say, even that word seems to become Christianized now. Father God. It's like, have you any idea what you just said? That we can call with such intimacy, God, our Father. We who were formerly separated from him because of our sin, now have access through the blood of Jesus Christ to his very throne. We can actually approach, the Bible says, the throne of God, the creator of the universe, with confidence. In other words, folks, through Jesus, we've been brought back into intimacy with God even now. What like this little boy experienced with his father. Watch this.
1: What you're about to see now was a surprise for a little boy whose dad has been in Iraq. The scene is a small town in northwest Washington State. U.S. Navy ensign Bill Hawes, who spent the past seven months deployed to Iraq, decided to surprise his six-year-old son hey, John at school. John didn't know it till he laid eyes on his dad. <laughs> It took young John a long time to stop crying, but when he did, he mustered the courage to introduce his dad to his classmates who had all written him letters while he was deployed. It's tough to take, but welcome home. We're back with more right after this.
0: From God, because of our sins, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our Father. Just like that Father, just like that soldier, God, too, folks, has gone to war for us and He has won. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. We who were estranged have now been brought back into intimacy. We actually have access before God, the Father, and we can run up to him. And in hopefully grateful tears, say, Allah, oh, Father, thank you for saving me. And making me your child. And one day, we do get to hear that. Welcome home. Welcome home. And here's the whole point, guys if that doesn't inspire you to worship, you've got some serious problems as a Christian. And that's precisely why he tells us don't remember just about his body. You need to remember about his blood being spilled for you because it made all that possible. And speaking of problems, the second thing about communion we need to remind ourselves if we're going to escape being disciplined by God is communion, hello, is a time of unity. Communion is a time in the church about unity. The word there, communion, what's the word? communion? It comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means community, unity. It speaks of a fellowship of joint participation. It speaks of the word unity that we have in Jesus Christ because his body was broken for us, because his blood was spilled for us on our behalf. Paul puts it this way. This is what it's made for us as Christians. We not only have union with God, but we are now a unified body of believers. Here's what he says, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. And here's the side effect. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Because you, Christian, you, church, you, sunrise, who profess the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are all one. In Christ Jesus. Folks, the Bible, this is amazing truth. Communion, union, unity. One of the most revolutionary truths you will never find in this world. They can't do it. They're trying it with basketball leagues, they're trying it with 55 million laws, they're trying it with all these techniques, but it doesn't work. It doesn't bring people together but the most revolutionary truth you will never find in this world is that the moment you get saved all gender all racial all ethnic barriers are forever removed why because we are one in christ jesus therefore when we gather okay we are not just celebrating the body and blood of jesus christ and what it's done for us we are celebrating what it has made for us a unified body of believers Okay? Something this world cannot find or experience. We are a bunch of misfits. Right? I got that joke from Arkansas. I've been there. I grew up in the Midwest. We're from all over the the world. God has brought us together. We're a bunch of misfits. We're all from different kinds of tribes and languages and tongues and backgrounds and colors and sizes and shapes and even pedigrees. Yet, we are supposed to get along with each other. And we can through the Sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's not just a broken ideal that's flapped out there. We can, and that's who he's made us. Even fact, if you wanted to blow your mind, this would be a great study. Study all the one another's in the scripture. The Bible says as Christians, in fact, so much so that we get along with each other, listen, we passionately encourage one another. We serve one another. We forgive one another. We admonish one another. We're like-minded with one another. We greet one another. We bear with one another. And of course, get this, we actually love one another because he first loved us. Can you believe that? That's what we're celebrating today, guys. That's what the word communion means. It's a time where we celebrate our joint participation in Jesus Christ and what he has made for us. He's turned us into a godly fellowship of unified believers, woo! And that's why there's such a strong reaction by Paul and God's discipline came down upon them when they violated this truth. Again, what does uh, the Bible say? What was happening to the Christians in Corinth? Some of them were even weak. Some of them were getting sick. Some of them even even died. Why? Because of their ungodly, irreverent attitude when it came towards communion. They were doing the exact opposite of what the word means, unity. Listen, here's what Paul says. That's why we needed to grab the context. Here's that first part again. 1 Corinthians 11, 17, 18, and 20 through 22. In the following directions, Paul says, I got no praise for you. This is before he explains communion. He points out the problem. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's divisions among you. What? <laughs> the word means union. What? He says, and to some extent, I believe it. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat, you're being selfish. It's all about you, self, what I want, me, me, me. Okay, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Come on, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Not in the church. He said, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Now again, notice the first thing that Paul rebukes the church for when it comes to communion. They were being divisive, which again is the exact opposite. Do you see the irony there? It's the exact opposite of what that word means. And then they were being apparently selfish. It's all about me. I have to have things the way that I want and they have to go the way they want. In fact, maybe that's what was lending to the divisive behavior because I didn't get what I want and I'm gonna make sure I get it. (laughs) Get out of my way. I know what's right. They were being debased. They were despising the church of God. They were treating each other horribly just like the world. And apparently, they had such a casual attitude towards sin that, listen, they were actually sinning while taking communion. The very ordinance that we celebrate to remember how God has unified us and saved us from our sins. Do you see the hypocrisy? You understand that? I think it opens a little bit more. This is why God did this then to his church to discipline him. You talk about bad advertisement. When you live like that as a Christian, as a church, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, here's the punishment. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you're gonna be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup because anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is the euphemism of you died. Wow. Isn't that interesting? I mean, when's the last time we've heard about a passage like this? It's in the Bible. God disciplined these Christians in Corinth to the point where some got sick, some got weak, some even died just for being divisive and sinful and selfish. And then it wasn't just the audacity to do that, period. But you did that while taking Communion? And if you think that's too harsh, I think John MacArthur's got a great analogy of why it makes total sense from God's point of view. Here's what he says He said, uh, I've been watching from time to time the recent peace protests that are going on in the media and that seems to be coming back, and they're flag burning. Flag trampling, flag stapling, other desecrations, disintegration of American flags. And when people do that, when they trample the flag of the United States of America, they are insulting everything that flag stands for and, and, and uh, uh, what, what they're doing it for, okay? That's exactly what they're doing it for. They know what they're doing. He said they become guilty of not just dishonoring the flag, but they become guilty of dishonoring the nation that that flag represents. They are mocking the leaders. They're treating with disdain those who have fought in the past for our freedoms and those who continue to fight and work for our freedoms today, those who give their lives in service to this great nation. And he said, so it is in the Lord's table when we trample the symbols of Jesus Christ with the feet of indifference or the feet of pride or the feet of shallowness or selfishness or unrepentance. It is to bring dishonor and shame upon the Christ to whom these symbols represent. He says, you just need to think about that. He said, I dare say there's probably not a handful of people here who would even think about burning a flag and bringing dishonor upon this great nation. But who here perhaps regularly brings dishonor upon the Lord by trampling the symbols that represent him here in communion? And he says, don't do that. Instead, verse 28... Let a man, and dare I say, or a woman, examine himself or herself. Look inside, he says. He says, take a real look at your heart and come in a worthy manner. Come to really worship. <laughs> what he's done. Worship. Come to worship. To really be thankful for the cross. And for the Christ who gave his life there, do it that way, examine yourself, and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. How many times have we gotten sick? Do you ever think about this? I get convicted just even going through this passage. How many times have I gotten sick, even as a pastor? Can I tell you something? I'm just a Christian like the rest of you. God's just gifted us in different ways. How many times have I gotten sick? Uh, How many times have have we, we, how many times did a Christian up around us just up and die? And unbeknownst to us, maybe it was their unworthy attitude in taking communion. Isn't that what the text says? Maybe it was. Their sinful attitude, their sinful behavior while taking communion. I know it sounds creepy, but that's what the text says. And so I echo in love and in mourning and encouragement as a shepherd's supposed to do. I echo the words of John MacArthur, don't do that. And if that didn't get you, finally, hopefully, the last one will. The third thing we need to understand about communion to remind ourselves to escape from being disciplined by the hand of God, okay, is communion, folks, is all about urgency, not complacency, now procrastination, it's about urgency. And this is right there in that text. Right there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 now. He says, now, when you're doing this, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? You're proclaiming the Lord's death, period? No, keep reading, until he comes. This is why we're so excited about this. This is so perfect timing for the study on the last days in Bible prophecy, which should stir on uh, some acknowledgement that he's coming back. And it could happen right now before I even finish this. Yes, we're acknowledging his death. But there's an urgency there until he comes. The Bible tells us, folks, that community, it's not just a time when we gather and, and celebrate according to this context here in 1 Corinthians to celebrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ and what it's done for us, a full pardon of our sins. Woo, a Father, Yeah! And not only that we, we celebrate that what he's made for us through his body and blood, a unified community of believers from all different backgrounds and they actually love each other. Yeah! The Bible is clear. We, we, we are also, it's a time when we remember that one day Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen. And this is what we need to spur on ourselves with, some urgency. Listen, in our hearts, what's the context? To get our hearts right with God before he arrives. Because the Bible is clear, folks, it's going to happen one of two ways. You're either going to die, and maybe it's today. As a Christian, it can happen at any moment. How many examples have we had over the last several months? And guess what? You'll be standing before the Lord. Or we could experience the rapture of the church and be caught up together and be with the Lord. Either way, you're gonna stand before him. In fact, let's do what the text says there about the rapture. Let's encourage one another with that truth. Let's take a look at that text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Here's what Paul says. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep, the Christians who've died already before us. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive are, and are left will be caught up uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now listen, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. Woo, yay, yippee. And therefore, let's encourage each other with these words, with that truth, Right? And so, folks, can I encourage you this morning? This is serious business. Here's the whole point. Remember this urgency until he comes? It's in the context of communion. So I think that this is the point, what he's trying to remind us, why it's so urgent. If you were to die right now, or if you were to experience the rapture of the church right now, and stand before God right now, today, as a born-again Christian, listen, what is your last act going to be before leaving this earth? We hope so, that it's worship. Or is it gonna be causing division in the church? What's the context of the passage? Is it gonna be sinning against the church? Is it going to be having a casual attitude towards the body and blood of Jesus Christ? What is it gonna be? Because guess what? One day it's gonna happen. What will your last act it's gonna be? We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so the question is, are you ready? I don't know the heart. I'm not here to cast out on salvation. But the Bible is clear. When you get born again and you're saved, you're indwelt at the moment of salvation with the Holy Spirit of God. He is the Holy Spirit who produces holiness in the life of the believer. Which means the moment you get saved, a uh, uh, bare minimum, you've got a problem with sin. You're not complacent with sin. I'm not saying you're sinless, but sin bugs you now you it's, oh, there's a struggle there, Paul says. Now you got a battle going on. The things you used to do, uh, it's like, and you could care less, now it's like, ah, no, oh man, God, please forgive me, I'm sorry. Yeah, you still blow it, but there's a struggle. And if you have no struggle with sin, something's wrong. Paul says, if you do not have, in Romans chapter eight, the spirit of Christ within you, you do not belong to Christ. Because every true born again Christian is indwelt at the moment of salvation with the spirit of God. And I don't know your heart. But if you have such a flippant attitude towards sin to where you could give a rip about it, you're not even convicted about it, and you would actually have the audacity to go through a communion service, are you really a Christian? Have you examined yourself? Or if the rapture were to occur, would you end up like one of these people? Let's watch this guy again. Jesus Christ is coming back for his church. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. I want you to know, church, that Jesus Christ could come this month. Or he might come next week. Or he could even come... I wonder if that was a communion Sunday. Folks, what we just saw is not make-believe. It is not Christian fantasy. It really is going to happen one day. And the Bible says it's going to happen when you least expect it. And so in closing, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, Pastor Jim's going to come up here real quickly and we're gonna give you a chance to respond. If you're not a Christian, hey man, today is the day. I challenge you, as the invitation is given, respond. Okay, call upon the name of Jesus Christ. This is great news, you heard the gospel. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything, all of it, and not just until you get to heaven, when you get into heaven, but right now, you can call him Abba Father and have an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe if you would just ask him and receive the good news. But there's a second challenge today, as Pastor Jim will come up here. If you are a Christian, will you please examine yourself? Would you please make that your heart is right with God, and you don't have the same flippant, selfish, sinful, divisive attitude that apparently the Christians in Corinth had? Would you please not eat and drink judgment? upon yourself. If you need to come and you need to get your heart right with God, or you need to take a moment and peel off and get right with somebody here in the congregation, would you please do that? I wish I had a button that can make us do it. I wish I had one for myself. But if the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart, would you please be obedient and be blessed? Pastor Jim, would you come? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's gonna happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar, okay? The, the, another commandment says, you shall not steal, okay? Uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, That's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart you wish they were dead and in God's eyes it's the same thing in principle folks that's only just a couple of the ten commandments we didn't even go through all of them but I think you're starting to get the picture the Bible is correct we have all fallen short of the glory of God myself included and that we are separated from God as a result and so when our time comes we're not automatically going to heaven we are headed for judgment we are headed for hell Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor,